I want to begin by telling you a story. This is a quote from a history book that I've read about the Spanish-American War, which is when the United States went to war with Spain in Cuba and the Philippines. And this is when Theodore Roosevelt had his famous charge up San Juan Hill with the Rough Riders. But uh, that's, this is not that story, but it's from that same conflict. I'm going to quote from the, the book here. To keep his men calm, Bucky O'Neill was pacing above them as they crouched behind whatever cover they could find, smoking a cigarette and trying to act as unperturbed by the winging bullets as possible. He seemed to believe that it was his obligation as an officer to not show fear, even to invite death. His men begged O'Neill to get down, but he took the cigarette out of his mouth, blew a puff of smoke, looked down at one of them and replied, Sergeant, the Spanish bullet has not been made that will kill me. A moment later, a Spanish bullet hit O'Neill in the mouth, exiting the back of his head. There was very little blood, just a small sputtering from his mouth. One of his men ran over to help him, but he was too late. O'Neill was dead before he hit the ground. You know, for a moment, you hear the beginning of that story, and it sounds like it's going to be a heroic story of bravery. You know, we, we love the, the thought of somebody who has that contempt for death, as we say, and there is absolutely a place for that. But I find in that story such a picture of our general attitude towards death when we're not in any kind of battle or conflict like that. Death is not something most of us like to think about. We like to go about our lives as if that's not even a possibility, never mind an absolute certainty. But we have to think about death because death comes for us all and you don't know when it's coming. You have no idea. It could be any moment for any reason. The reason I'm telling that story is in Exodus, as we're going to read tonight, the people were told when their death was coming. And they were told how to prepare for it. And you don't know the date of your death. But you can know for certain how to be ready whenever that date comes. And there is nothing more important than that. Don't you think being ready for what comes after death, is that not the most important task of life? And the answer, as you all know, and as we're going to read tonight, is that you must be covered by the blood of the Lamb. So let's read chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It's actually the whole chapter. It's a short one. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, the last thing we saw in chapter 10 was Pharaoh's categorical refusal to let the children of Israel go. Remember, he had negotiated several different ways. You can go, but only the men. You can go, but your cattle will stay here. And Moses stood firm on that, and Pharaoh said, You will never see my face again. Get out of here. Although we do see Moses speaking to him one more time in verse 4 here, that little speech. So Moses said, it doesn't say to Pharaoh, but he goes out from Pharaoh at the end of that little speech. So we can assume he's speaking to Pharaoh there. Maybe that happened at the same time because the, the Hebrew for Moses said or the Lord said could also be translated had said. 
So maybe Pharaoh had sent Moses out, and, and you can think of this as, as a story, remember. Imagine this is a commercial break, or it's the end of an episode to be continued, right? Get out of here. You're never speaking to me again. And then the next week it picks up, and Moses is telling Pharaoh at the 10th plague that's about to come, and that was all part of the episode when Moses was kicked out. It's, it's interesting to me, at least, to try and piece together the story there, because, I mean, after all, this is a great story, isn't it? If nothing else. But he speaks to God speaks to Moses, and then Moses speaks to Pharaoh about the coming 10th plague. We have already seen three cycles of three plagues that we watched had a, had a certain rhythm to them and a structure to the where they were, way they were told. And now we have the 10th plague, which is a capstone of all of them and, of course, is far worse. Began with plague number one, the Nile River turned to blood, which really is something out of a horror movie, isn't it? All the river, not just the river, but the pools and the cisterns. And even in the houses, the coffee pot was full of blood. And the people couldn't drink it. And they had to keep on digging wells farther and farther away from the river to get clean water. Plague number two, we saw the frogs. You can imagine that all those critters are getting out of that water because all the fish are dying. And the Lord, I would imagine, sovereignly caused them to multiply. And then the magicians did the same thing and only made it worse, you remember. And the frogs were everywhere in every nook and cranny. And then Pharaoh pleaded with Moses and he prayed and all the frogs died. So now they're making these big stinking piles of frogs. And the third plague was lice. Remember, we talked about this as any kind of biting, burrowing thing. So lice or maggots, it could even be said. Mosquitoes, some have it. And then plague four was the flies. I'm inclined to think this might be the, the maturation of the larval form that was plague three, although the Bible doesn't say that. Now there's flies buzzing and whirring around and biting that had been feasting on these nasty piles of frogs that had been living in the bloody water. Next thing we see is the livestock were sick which it could be the Lord sovereignly had that tied to the bites of those flies, as would have been the boils that the people received being bitten by these flies, these sores, these festering, erupting sores, as the Hebrew put it there. Then the Lord said hail. Remember it said fiery hail, and we're not even quite sure what that means. We just know that there was hail that crushed everything, and there was fire along with it. And it's fun to speculate, but we can just stick with what the Bible says. Number eight came locusts. Locusts, which if all the vegetation had died, it makes good sense that the locusts would have begun to swarm as they do when they finished off the rest of the vegetation. And number nine, you go into thick darkness. The last thing that the Egyptians had was the sun, their god Ra. And you can see how this is bracketed, plague one and plague nine, by their, their two greatest objects of worship, the Nile River and the sun itself. And the Lord, remember, is establishing himself as the God of gods. But now we get to plague 10. The firstborn are going to be killed. And Moses, once again, is before Pharaoh announcing this. This is so important to remember that when we want to cast aspersions on God for judging people, he warned Pharaoh. He told him what was coming. He's going to inflict judgment upon Egypt. And that word judgment, we have to remember, is tied to the word for justice. A judge hands down judgment. It is just, it is fair. Because Egypt had oppressed Israel for centuries, 430 years of slavery and oppression and forced labor and infanticide. And God says, I'm going to go throughout the land of Egypt and I'm going to strike every one of your firstborn dead both the animals and of the people. This is most likely referring to the firstborn son of a given household. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details on this, but that's probably the best way to think of it. Each household is going to lose the firstborn son. There's probably a parallel here to the firstborn being cast into the river at the beginning of the book of Exodus. That's justice. And this is the kind of thing that Men who are famous atheists will call out, can you believe that God would do something like that? Strike down the firstborn children of the land of Egypt. You know, for all our talk about justice, there's a lot of talk about justice these days. Justice for this, justice for that, social justice, personal justice. We're still shocked when we see it. If you could see what actual justice is, it would shock you. Because justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. A wound for a wound, as the Bible says. That is real justice. It's cold in that there's no passion to it. There's no fire. There's no heat. You're just handing down what's right. 
Very often when you're called to court, you don't want justice. You're not upset because you didn't get justice. You're upset because you didn't get mercy when you go before the judge. And God himself is so good that he is able to perfectly and proportionately hand down actual justice. And I think people are slowly beginning to realize this as we talk more and more about justice. They're starting to realize, well, listen, if we're going to do this, we can play this game forever because who's, who's innocent? Well, that's exactly right. This is the truth that the Bible teaches. You must accept you are on the wrong side of justice. Everybody out there that wants to talk about what, what's right and what's fair and reparations and justice, they all think they're on the right side. And even if they think they're on the wrong side, they think that admitting they're on the wrong side puts them on the right side. But that's not how justice works. Your Honor, I did kill that man, but I know that it was wrong to do that. So, you know, I, I would never, I know that murderers are right. Yeah, that's why you're going to be sent to the electric chair, my friend, because you killed somebody. You're a sinner. You are on the wrong side of cosmic, eternal justice. And you say, well, how do you figure? I'm no worse than anybody else. I'm not saying you're worse than anybody else. I'm saying you are worse than the standard, which is perfection. Have you not wreaked your petty revenge on the world around you? I've recently heard a couple different interviews with people who... Uh, they were authors and filmmakers and creatives and things like that, and they're talking about the characters they put in their story, and they all say some version of, nobody believes that they're the bad guy. Nobody believes that they're doing the wrong thing. I don't think that's true. You do things, let me put it this way, I do things that I know this is not the right thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, out of spite, out of hate, out of revenge. And I like using this example because it's so small, but it's so true. Haven't you ever gone? I'll just use this one. I went to the UAB game on Saturday. And uh, it was a great game. And they played Liberty, which is my alma mater. So I was torn. But while I was there, I was at the, uh, the concession stand. And if you've ever been to the concession stand at a sporting event, the people there will deliberately go as slow as they can to let you know I'm better than this. I'm above this. I don't work for you. I know you want to go quickly, but I'm going to walk slowly because I don't want to go fast. And you can see it. They want you to know. Maybe you've done this before. Say, I'd like, I'd like a pretzel, please. And there's, you know, five pretzels right there. And they go, okay. Turn around as slowly as they can and saunter over and check their phone. And then they grab the pretzel. And then they get the napkin. And then they'll kind of talk to their buddy. And then they'll come over. And it's almost like they want you to, to say something so that they can start something. Now, don't get too uppity. You do this, too. Maybe when you were a kid, you used to do this with your older brother or sister. You knew just how to turn the screws. Now, we know that things like that are wrong, but we do them anyway. That's sin. You are deliberately making someone else's life worse. You say, I'm going, I resent, let's use this as an example. I resent that I'm down here and everybody else is out there watching the game. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I still get paid, but also make it just a little bit worse for everybody who gets what I don't have. That's sin, my friends. Have you not failed to love God and love people as you're supposed to? To love, to truly love, and to love your enemies, as Jesus said. Jesus said, even pagans love their, their friends. Give me a break. Can you love your enemies? Have you used, here's one, maybe, maybe you've had a horrible life, and people, it's, it's not petty. No, somebody seriously hurt you, did something wrong to you, and it was unjust. But have you used your injustice that was done to you as an excuse to perpetuate further sin yourself? That somebody sinned against you, so now you're going to use that as your excuse to sin against other people? My father was rotten to me, so I'm going to be rotten to everybody else. We do things like that. Every one of us is a victim, but also a perpetrator of sin. And God has made a decree to us, just as he did to Pharaoh, that the penalty for sin is death in hell. Doesn't matter how much sin, the fact that sin is in you and comes out of you. One person has an infection and gets very sick. One person has it and doesn't get very sick. They're both infected. And that's what sin is like for you and for me. The very beginning, Genesis 2.17, God said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Ezekiel 18 verse 20, the Lord said, the soul who sins shall die. 
The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So right there, this is key because some people say the Bible doesn't teach this. It is focusing on individual sin. You don't pay for somebody else's sin, great. But you can't put it on somebody else either. Well, my dad, my mom was awful to me, and then she treated me wrong, and that's why I act this way. Or my wife or my ex-husband or my kids have driven me to this extreme. No, you don't get to do that. Nor do you get to say, well, my grandma was a great lady, so that'll count for me. The wages of sin is death. It's the curse. Death is a curse. For all our poetic talks about, about death, and how it's wonderful and it's just a transition, well, then why are we still wrecked when it comes? Why are we still broken? People's entire personalities can change when somebody they love passes. They become a different person. Despite all the nice things we post on Instagram, death is an intrusion, and we all know that. And not only that, but after death waits eternal hell, the eternal fire of torment. Do you know who in the Bible spoke more about hell than anybody else? Jesus Christ. He was the one that used the phrase where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's hell. Eternal torment. Eternal punishment for an eternal sin of which you are a part. God has warned us. And Moses warned Pharaoh. But you see there, that in verse 8, it says, Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Why is Moses so mad? Because Pharaoh wouldn't listen. He wouldn't heed the warnings. He told him what was coming, and he said, get out of here. And Moses knows. You can imagine. This is probably why it got to the point where Pharaoh said, I don't want you coming back here anymore. Because Moses knows that the result of this conversation is going to affect the lives of millions of young little babies. And Pharaoh says, get out, to heed the warning. But there's an important note here, do you see? God makes a distinction. He says, the dogs aren't even going to bark at the Hebrews tonight. Not even to their animals. They're going to be just fine. There is going to be a way of escape. So this is the second thing that, that Moses is saying here. Number one, judgment is coming. But number two, there is a way to escape. And the next chapter is going to tell us what it is. Because as Abraham said in Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you, speaking to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is just. And God is right now pouring out judgment upon the oppressor. He's not going to allow that to spill over unto the oppressed. He's going to provide a way of escape for them. But you might sit there and think, well, what good does that do me? I'm a sinner too. You know, we always want to put ourselves in the position of the Israelites here, and that's totally appropriate, but you're also an Egyptian. You're also the oppressor. So what do you do? Well, Moses is going to tell us, but let me just ask you, does God have your attention yet? Do you not realize that you are going to die? One day your heart is going to stop beating. Your body is going to slow down and it's not going to work anymore. And eventually you're going to close your eyes and never open them again. That's going to happen to you. But there is a way to be delivered from the punishment that follows death. So God's going to give us the warning. Let's keep going. Chapter 12, we'll read the first 13 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. 
and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Exodus is at hand. We are almost there. And he says, this is going to be your New Year's Day, Moses. This is around March or April, around this time. So it has been some time. We don't know precisely how long, but some months that Moses has been at this with Pharaoh. And if you ever want to know where Passover is, well, you just got to figure out where Good Friday and Easter are. And it's, it's the week before that. So March, April. And God tells them how to escape this plague that is coming. It is important to note that God is going to deliver them, but God also has responsibility that he requires of them. I'm not going to dive into that, but it's important to remember. Every family was to take a lamb, and it's always a, a sheep in every movie you've ever seen, but it could have been a sheep or a goat. One-year-old, male, without blemish, so you don't, you don't get to pick the one that is, is getting old and is about to die anyway, or the, the one that is lean or sick or gimpy and you're not going to be able to do anything with it. No, it's supposed to cost you something. Take it into your house from the 10th day to the 14th day. Have a pet lamb in your house before you kill it and eat it. Why is that? Well, again, you're supposed to feel this. It's supposed to be a memorial. And then kill it. And they were to eat the lamb, and he gives the instructions here, to eat the lamb roasted. Right? He says, roast over the fire, don't eat it raw, because that's disgusting and also it's unclean and unsanitary, and the Lord will talk about that later. But you're not supposed to boil it, right? So you're not supposed to take time to cook it is the idea. It would have taken longer to dress the animal, to clean it, and then to boil the meat. So he says, you're supposed to eat this quickly, roast it whole, and then eat it that way. You're also going to have bread without leaven. So you've seen the matzos that we have for communion, that kind of thing. And with bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? Well, because you don't have time to cook them yet. Most vegetables are not so tasty the second you pull them out of the ground. You've got to mess with it to convince yourself to eat it. But the idea here is that you've got to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. With your staff in your hand and your belt tied. Literally there, that's with your loins girded. They would take the robes and they would tie them up. Then to have everything ready to go. Because you don't know when it's going to come, but you've got it ready to go now. And most important of all, to take the blood of the lamb, it's going to say letter with a bunch of hyssop, which was a kind of green plant similar to marjoram, if you know what that is. And it had little white buds on the end of it. And they would take that and they would spread it on the top and sides of their door. To put the blood of the lamb on the door of the house. Now, to be clear, this is not magic. God is not saying the blood will keep the, the death away. No, what does he say? He says, I will see the blood and I will pass over you. God is in complete control. The, the blood is an act of faith. It is a demonstration of our faith in the Lord. And it's also, by the way, a prefiguring of what was going to happen later. But we'll talk about that in, in a few moments. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that, of course, is where we get the word for Passover, which is capital P and rendered as one word we, very frequently in the Bible. Now, the word is usually in Hebrew, Pesach. You will still hear that to this day, that Orthodox Jews will, around this time, say good Pesach to one another. And you maybe have heard the word Paschal before, that the Paschal lamb would be sacrificed. So that comes from the Aramaic word, which is Pascha. You can see how they're, they're connected. Pesach and Pascha have the similar consonants. And it comes from the word Pasach, which means to pass over or to skip over. So this is the word that we're looking at here. God is going to pass by that house. This is what the Lord has told them to do. There's going to be a, this will become a memorial. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for right now, this is, you're going to spread the blood on the door. You're going to eat a quick meal, ready to go. We've already seen that they have asked of the Egyptians, but uh, we'll talk about that more next week. That's going to be their slave wages for 400 years. Something had to die in place of the firstborn for the family to be spared. 
This is absolutely important. God is telling us, we already know there's a way, there's a death that is coming, there's a way to escape. And what God communicates to us, that something else has to die. God will accept a perfect sacrifice in place of your own life. This is why it had to be a flawless lamb. There's a picture of morality there. It can't be some wicked person to die for the righteous person. What you see here is the mercy of God at work. And this is good for us to know. This is good for us to know as people, and I think as a culture as well. God would rather show mercy than justice. God would rather show mercy than justice. When people get angry and roused for justice, it always spills over the boundaries of justice, doesn't it? And you get something like the Salem witch hunt or the lynchings that would happen. And it, it just becomes mob justice. And what inevitably happens is group A overdoes it. And so group B retaliates and they overdo it. And it goes back and forth. And we're not having justice now. We have a war. God would rather show mercy. Ezekiel 18.32, God said, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Can you just know that about your God? God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. 2 Peter 3, 9, God said he is not willing that any should perish. God goes, you think I like this? You think I like executing judgment? I'm a parent. I have to discipline my kids. It's the worst part of my day. You know, parents tell me this is hurting me more than it hurts you. That's true. If you enjoy disciplining your children, you're kind of sick. I can't wait to make that kid miserable. That's not how God is. God promises to make a way of escape. But again, we're faced with a problem. Okay, God's going to pardon the righteous. Well, I'm not righteous. Okay, well, God's going to provide a way of escape. All we need is a perfect sacrifice. And you go, well, where are we going to find that? We're going to find a lamb? And even when we hear that, we go, what's a lamb going to do? Well, you're exactly right. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, Paul wrote, or whoever the author of Hebrews wrote, it is impossible. It is what? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was never the point in the Old Covenant to take away sins by the blood of bulls and goats. Again, that would have been more akin to magic. Okay, so if it's a person that sins and you've got somebody to die in their place, you'll need a person to die in their place. But here's the problem. I thought we were all sinful. So you can't find a perfect guy to die for me because he needs somebody to die for him and you can work that chain all the way back to Adam. And not only that, but he's only got one life to spend. So even if we had one perfect guy, we'd all be fighting over who gets to have him die for them. Psalm 49.7 said, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. We know that death is coming. We know there's a way of escape. We know there can be a sacrifice and it must be perfect, but we don't really see one forthcoming. But let me just say again, as I said at the beginning, when I said, does God have your attention? If God says that a perfect sacrifice will do, then we need to be start paying attention. And it doesn't matter what the way of escape is. If the house is burning, you don't get to pick your favorite door to climb out. You pick the one that's been knocked in the wall by the firemen. So let's keep reading. Verse 14, down to verse 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That part probably feels a little repetitive to you. Well, actually, it's going to continue into the remainder of this chapter and even into the next one. And this is actually much more like what the rest of Exodus will be when we get to the end. It'll be a lot of establishing laws. It'll be establishing rites and, and ceremonies that they'll have to go through. And it's important to remember that this book was not just used the way we use it for you know, theological insight and for, for you know, reading it for inspiration. I mean, this was a law book for them. This was how they were supposed to do their life. And it's passages like this that cause people to read it and say, it says it so many times, clearly, people just throw that word in there, clearly, and it makes them sound smart, but they'll say, clearly, this was stitched together from four or five different sources that all said the same thing. That, that, that really is just cultural ignorance in a lot of ways. American English especially, but English in general, is short and terse and to the point. We, we want it written and we want it written clearly. Rule one, if you're into writing, they'll tell you, rule one is omit needless words. That's how we write. That is not how they wrote. They would repeat things to emphasize things. If it's important, we're going to keep saying it. We've seen it several times already where this guy will tell his servant, go tell them this long paragraph. And then it'll say, and then the servant went and told them this basically exact same paragraph. Because it's trying to, to instruct the reader and to remind them of what's important. And also, again, remember this probably would have been given orally. And you're trying to get the rhythm and the phrases into people's heads so that they remember them more clearly. So different time, different culture. But it's God's Bible, so if he said it twice, it's probably important. And this is instituting the first Hebrew festival, which is Passover. Hard to imagine the nation of Israel apart from Passover, but this was the first one. Even before their release, God is preparing them to remember what he was about to do. And we use that term Passover, and it can get confusing, so let me uh, lay this out for you a little bit. Passover is the culmination of a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there would be seven days that are called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the last meal they would eat would be called the Passover. Now, how this gets confusing is the entire week sometimes in the Bible will be referred to as Passover. And that makes the chronology of the life of Jesus a little difficult because we're like, well, wait a minute, it said Passover here, but what about there? Well, you've got to remember, this was a week-long feast that culminated with Passover. Kind of like, you know, December 15th, we'll say Merry Christmas. Well, it's not Christmas, but it's the Christmas season, right? A little different, but it's the same kind of idea. There was the specific Passover meal. There was a week building up to that. And the whole thing could be referred to as Passover generally. It would begin and end with a Sabbath rest and be celebrated by eating unleavened bread. And, and all you were supposed to prepare on those days was enough food for yourself to eat. And in the Passover meal, all things that were done of necessity in the book of Exodus were now done ceremonially. So the things that they did because they needed to at the time were done with ceremony. And that's how a lot of our festivals and rituals come about. You know, we, we eat a turkey on Thanksgiving, not because it's the only thing we can find, but because that's, that's what they ate at the first Thanksgiving, right? So let's run through all these things. They're all, they're all full of symbolism that it's important for us to see, and I don't even have time to get into all of it, but they still would eat the bitter herbs. Usually these days, I understand it to be horseradish, which, yep, yeah, that's a bitter herb. Remember, they were eaten without time for preparation as a symbol of what? As a symbol of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. 
to remember how awful it was to eat something that isn't very good because you have to remember that this was not a good time and it's important for us to remember that. While it's not mentioned here, it would be incorporated into the, the ceremony, the cups of wine would be drunk as a symbol of the shed blood of the lambs that were sacrificed to keep death outside the door. It was the memorial, the memory. They wouldn't kill lambs and put it on the door every time, and they certainly don't today, but that is what the, the cups represent and also perhaps could represent the blood of the firstborn, although that, that's probably secondary. Still eating the unleavened bread. They, they ate the bread without leaven the first time because they needed to, to get out. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. Leaven, of course, is yeast. It's what causes the bread to rise. But now they're eating it to remember. But also because leaven in the Bible comes to be a symbol of unrighteousness. And, and it's a great symbol, actually, because Jesus would use that term a lot. Leaven to describe the Pharisees. Because what does leaven do? It puffs you up. You get puffed up with sin. You think you're somebody. So there's a humility lesson here. And there's a whole ritual today surrounding Passover where the kids will go through the house and try to find the last little bits of leaven to get them out of the house. And this is the Lord's way of saying, you're going to do this my way. The bread came to symbolize holiness because it's bread without leaven. That it was their holiness before the Lord, their separateness that caused them to be spared which is important to remember that it's not just being part of the team, but it's, it's keeping the righteous and moral mandates. And of course, the lamb, which the, previously they didn't have time to prepare, to prepare it the normal way, but they would be sacrificed in the tabernacle or later on the temple, and they'd be taken home and they'd be eaten that night. And of course, now there is no tabernacle or temple, but the, the lamb is still eaten. And the Passover ritual became, and in fact remains for many, the ultimate expression of what it means to be a Hebrew, to be part of the nation of Israel as we celebrate Passover. It's the day that God made us a nation. If you were a foreigner in the land, you didn't get to celebrate Passover. You could convert if you wanted, and then you could. But you didn't get to do this. This was special, and it still is special. And just as Passover was the the ultimate moment for Israel, where God delivered them, it was on Passover that the ultimate deliverance was secured for us as well. Because it was in fact during the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was heralded as king. Why were there so many people there? They were there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were there for Passover. Everybody was supposed to come back to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage for that time of year. Jesus comes in. They're shouting, Hosanna. That Monday, he comes in and he cleansed the temple. Tuesday, he had the disputations with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. On Wednesday, he gave the Olivet Discourse, the prophecy of the end of the world and the destruction of the temple. And on Thursday night, Jesus and the disciples ate the Passover together. And you all know the story of the Last Supper. But just in case you've never made the connection, you need to know that the Last Supper was the celebration of Passover, which is established here in the book of Exodus. So with that in mind, will you keep your finger in Exodus, but let's turn to Luke 22. We're going to read Luke 22, verses 14 through 22. This is, of course, the Last Supper. This is the last time Jesus will be with his disciples before he goes to the cross that very night. Luke 22, I'm going to read verses 14 through 22. And when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is finished, fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, during the Passover meal. And there was a whole set of rituals and questions and ceremony that would be gone through during the Passover meal, and there still is. That thing that Moses said about the child asking, what is the purpose of this? There are those ritual questions that the child will ask during Passover. Why is this night different from any other night? But going through that process, Jesus adds stuff. Do you catch how significant this is? He's going through this ceremony that has been done for thousands of years. He breaks the bread, which represented the haste with which they had to eat it. And he says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And they take the cup, which of course represented the the blood of the lamb. And he says, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus gave new significance to the Passover and identified himself with the sacrificed lamb that had caused death to pass over the house. Which is why we to this day still celebrate not Passover, but the Lord's Supper, communion. It, It is derived from Passover, the bread and the cup. It is the body and the blood of Jesus because Jesus Christ is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said when Jesus first approached him at the Jordan. In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus and it says that Jesus was as a lamb that had been slain. The whole Bible needs to connect to the whole Bible for it to mean anything. The lamb of God that takes away the sin in the world. We go, that's weird. But if you know the book of Exodus, you know what that means. That man is the lamb of God. We've been looking for a man that could die as a sacrifice in our place so that death will pass over us. And Jesus Christ is that man. Because he was a man, he could die for men. But because he was also God, he could die for all men. Because Jesus was in a body, he could die. But because he was the Lord, death could not hold him. And he lives to this day. And his death is able to be applied to you. As your Passover lamb. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. Peter wrote, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A lamb without blemish or spot. Where have I heard that before? Passover. You think Peter was thinking of that last supper when he was writing those words? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The New Testament got it. They knew what this was. They knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of these pictures and images that were given in the ceremony of Passover. He was the fulfillment of that promise where God said, I will deliver you not just from death tonight, but from death in hell. Not just from slavery in Egypt, but liberation from slavery to sin. That's what Jesus came to do. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. This Passover is the repetition and the the eternal reminder of the promise God had made to Adam and Eve in the garden. I will send the seed of woman to crush the head of the serpent. And now he says, just as the lamb died to deliver you from death, someday my lamb will come to die and deliver you from death. I, don't, I simply don't have enough time to draw this out for you. We could talk about Abraham and Isaac when he says, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice, my son. And there was a ram caught in the thicket so that the son of God would be killed, not the son of man. God himself prepared a sacrifice so that death could pass us over. Why? Because remember, God would rather show mercy than justice. But he must show justice because he was just. So Romans 3 says that in Christ Jesus, you had the justice and mercy of God working together. An eternal punishment was poured out on Jesus Christ. But because he himself could not be held by death, he rose. And now God can freely offer mercy because your debt's been paid. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as our Passover lamb on the same night that all those lambs had been sacrificed and brought home to be eaten. The lamb of God was waiting his own crucifixion. Shall we move on now to chapter 12, verse 29 
through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up at night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Well, that night, as the Lord had said, the destroyer went through Egypt. The destroyer, the Lord said. He said, I will will pass over you. The destroyer will not cross the line. This was very likely an angel that the Lord had sent the angel of death he is sometimes called. And he killed the firstborn of every Egyptian house, every house that did not have the blood of the lamb covering the door. And you might wonder, I mean, was this a silent thing? Was this a sickness that suddenly ravaged the firstborn? Was it a horrible experience? We have no reason to assume it was silent and suddenly happened without them noticing. It could have been a rushing mighty wind. It could have been a flame of fire. It could have been anything. We don't know. We only know that the people began to cry out in great grief with such a cry that had never been heard because every house had lost their child. So harsh. But before you feel outraged at that and think, how could I serve a God that would do something like that? You need to remember what we've read at the beginning of this book, that Pharaoh had ordered the firstborn boys thrown into the Nile River to prevent overpopulation. This is absolute justice. It's a hard thing, isn't it? This is justice. This is the Lord doing exactly to Pharaoh what he had done to those people, causing the Egyptians to feel a little piece of the pain that they had caused the Israelites for over 400 years. That's justice. And according to one of our greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln, This was the same justice that America faced during the Civil War. And I think he puts it so perfectly. Let me put this out there. This is from Lincoln's second inaugural address. He said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth plied by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be repaid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is he saying? He's saying, yes, we want war to go away quickly. He said, but we have spent 250 years enslaving people and We're losing all all of the wealth that we have gained over these years. Maybe God wants every penny of it to be lost in this great conflict. And maybe every time the whip lashed on the back of a slave and blood dropped to the ground, maybe God is repaying us by the incredible death toll on the battlefield here. He says, but what are we supposed to say? God's justice is right all the time. That's exactly what is happening here in the book of Exodus. God is repaying them. So can I just say briefly, before you make justice your battle cry, you better know what you're talking about. Justice is a harsh taskmaster. And only the Lord is sufficiently righteous to execute it. But Pharaoh finally sends Moses and the people away. No debate this time. Get out of here. And God has kept his promise. He said, I'm going to execute this plague and then Pharaoh will let you go. But not only did God keep the promise of death, but he kept the promise of life too. None of the Hebrews were killed. Not one person who had put the blood of the lamb on their door was touched by this. And again, this was not magic. This was faith. Believing that God is going to spare us. It's active faith. You might say, we say foolish things like, I'm not putting blood on my door because that would demonstrate a lack of faith. How? Well, because I don't think that that's going to save me, but God told you to do it. So I trust that God knows what he's talking about, and I fear the Lord enough to do exactly what he says. 
That's another promise that God kept. He maintained the distinction. This is so important. This was a mighty act of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty eight 28 says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And in the end, that is the only thing that is going to save you or me. Faith in the sacrifice of Christ. Do you notice that it was not just being part of the nation that saved these people, but it was being covered by the blood? Paul would say later, it's, it's not being part of a dis, the descendants of Abraham that will save you. You have to be covered by the blood of Jesus. It's not growing up in the church and being part of the community that will save you. You've got to be covered by the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're oppressed. It doesn't matter if you're an oppressor. The only thing that matters is has the blood of the lamb covered you? Because the angel of death is going to pass you by too. It is inevitable. Death comes to all men. And unless the blood of the Lamb covers you, your final moments, it doesn't matter how nice and peaceful they are surrounded by your loved ones. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus, the next thing that will happen is you will stand before the judge and he will send you away to everlasting fire. But if you trust that the blood of Jesus was enough and you repent of your sins, then you will be saved. Isaiah 53, 5 prophesied that Jesus would be our Passover lamb. It said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In an act of supreme self-sacrifice, Jesus has made mercy available to you rather than justice. You've got to spread the blood over the door. And you say, how do I do that? You've got to believe and call on the Lord. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And not only will death pass you by and you will have hope at the end of your life, you'll be liberated from slavery right now. And you will be free to live apart from what has bound you your whole life. Even if nothing in your circumstances changes, you will be liberated from them, set free and above them. So then what do we do? We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that that story was true, that he did die, that he did rise again, that God will accept that sacrifice. You confess it with your mouth, the Bible says. You believe it and you serve him forever. You say, all right, Lord, you win. You're king. I will trust your sacrifice. Because if you are not washed in the blood, there's no mercy. There is harsh justice for you. Why was Moses so angry? as he fled from the, from the house of Pharaoh, because Pharaoh had ignored the warnings. And if you're here tonight, you're hearing the warning. And if you stand before the Lord and think, I'm going to beg for mercy, God's going to say, I already sent people to tell you. And now it's too late. But if you take these warnings to heart and you believe and you turn your whole life around and you let the Lord change you, when you pass from this life, it'll be into what the Bible calls glory in the presence of the Lord. For those who are under the blood, there is only hope waiting for you. A life now under his grace, full of his love and his righteousness. But after that, glory in heaven forevermore. Because the Bible says that those who are to be saved are those who overcame the world by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony.